I'm Wendy. And I'm Heather. And this is our podcast, Queer Religion. Where we have everyday people sharing the stories of where their sexual identity and spirituality overlap. Kind of like a conversation between friends. Maybe over a tea. Like a boba, a boba tea. tea. Ooh, with rainbows. Unicorns. And some other fancy flags. Today, our guest with us is Josh. Josh, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Oh, we're so yeah. glad you've joined us. Yes, excellent, Josh. So um, before we get started, if you just wanted to maybe share for everyone something uh, about yourself, maybe how you identify and what that means for you. Yeah, of course. So my name is Josh. Um, I'm 26 years old. I identify as a white cis gay man. And I'm a writer, um, mostly of poetry, but also sort of microfiction and a teacher. Um, so, yeah. Wow, awesome. That's awesome. Do you have any poetry that you share? Oh, um, I have not memorized any of my own poems, but I do have a poem by the poet Christian Wyman memorized. And so maybe it's short. I'll try to recite it and I Go may... For it. I may butcher it, but you probably won't know because he's not very popular. <laughs> well, I won't know. I'm someone more you know, cultured than I might. Um, Christian Wyman would certainly know. But this is, this is <laughs> music maybe by Christian Wyman. Too many elegies turning sadness into a kind of sad religion. One wants in the end just once to befriend one's own loneliness to make of the ache of inwardness something, music maybe, or even just believing in it, and summer in the long room alone where the child chances on a bee banging against the glass like an attack of happiness. That was stunning. I love it. Thank yes, you. Thank you. thank you. I don't think I butchered it. I think I got it. <laughs> it sounded solid. It sounded good. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and tell us where you grew up, a little bit about yourself, like what background you came from? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, um, family of five, mom, dad, and two brothers. I was the middle. Um, both of us are separated by two years on both sides. So pretty, pretty close in age to my siblings. Um, is it fundamentalist evangelical household in the sense of we went to a mega church that met in the sort of re-transformed interior of a Walmart. Um, oh, so nice. Two to three thousand. It was big. Uh, two to three thousand people, probably every church service, very much like concert style, jumbotron <laughs> um, sort of worship. Um, but I think more intensely than we were, of course, going every week, but both of my parents were working at actually competing evangelical Christian schools in Tucson. So my mom <laughs> was a um, elementary PE and music teacher at a school called Desert Christian. And my dad was an athletic director, assistant principal and head disciplinarian at Push Ridge Christian Academy. And so from kindergarten all the way till 12th grade, I was going to those schools. Um, and so I would say more than just sort of weekly church services, 
school was not an escape from that sort of evangelical mm. fundamentalism. Um, it was very much built into curriculum, very much built into the sort of class structure. And I think especially having parents working there, um, the scrutiny and pressure on me and my siblings, I think was a little bit more extreme because how we behaved and how we were was a direct reflection of our parents' holiness. Um, right. And how, how well they put their values to their children, their child rearing. Absolutely. Um, and I think it was a community and many communities are like this, but that really was, I mean, it was a sort of community where the only viable form of family was between a man and a woman and you needed to have children. And so I think like sort of competitiveness between the nuclear shapes of people's families, where I think sort of how you gained social capital in that community mm. was oftentimes through how impressive and how righteous are your children, <laughs> which a lot, I, Jeez. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of pressure. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not sure how conscious of that pressure I was while I was in it. Um, but upon reflecting on what was so weird and so traumatic about growing up the way I did, I think that that sort of pressure to perform a very specific fundamentalist Christian righteousness um, was difficult and throttling. For sure. And that was your whole community, right? So um, I, was everyone that you, you know, interacted with and had close relationships also involved in the, the same, you know, school system and, and church? Absolutely. Um, not many people from my schools went to my church, actually, just because we lived pretty far away from where I went to middle school and high school. But our complete sort of social network was people who thought the way my parents did. Um, and so I didn't know, you know, and I think it aligned too with Republicanism, you know, that was sort of one of the expectations of that community that was, if you are righteous, you're voting red. Um, mm -hmm. usually, usually because of sort of the, the moral issues mm -hmm. that the red was sort of obsessed with and still is obsessed with of abortion and gay rights. And really those were the two that were sort of vocally spoken about when I was growing up. And so, yeah, I didn't know one person who was even a Democrat really <laughs> almost until college. I did know them. They just never told me <laughs> because that was sort of something you hid, you know, it's a political don't ask, don't tell. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I think that's a great point is I was really insulated from the world. Um, I was really insulated from any sort of form of difference. And that certainly had to do with sexuality, with gender identity, largely with race. It was a, a predominantly white community, though there were exceptions, a, a pretty big Hispanic and Latinx population because it was Tucson. But yeah, so I think an insular little bubble. And I think what even sort of furthered that was we lived so far away from the school, which is where most of my friends went to. And so I was very rarely let over to friends' houses. Um, mm -hmm. And so it really sort of was a universe of five. 
where that would expand when we'd go to school and go to sporting events. But both of my parents didn't really have much family in Tucson. So it really was just sort of a <laughs> um, close, possibly oppressively close little community of our, mm -hmm. our sort of family severed from a lot of really any other sort of social structure. Mm -hmm. What uh, were some of the major beliefs that your evangelical community held to like spiritually or? Yeah, great question. Um, and I would say this is an area where my church and my school completely aligned. You know, my parents were sure to find a church that aligned with sort of what their schools were teaching. And so mm. I think how I would, and again, I wouldn't have described it in this way when I was growing up, but it's just sort of in reading that I've done since <laughs> my life mm. really changed where the term I'm going to use is atonement theory. Mm. And by that, I just sort of mean the sort of way Christianity was viewed was everything was good, man sinned, man fell from grace, man's flesh and man's humanness was 100% corrupt um, mm -hmm. and evil. And to undo that evil, a wrathful God had to sort of sacrifice his son on our behalf, which somehow miraculously, magically undoes the sort of intrinsic evil of human nature. Um, and so that was sort of the core of what Christianity was. And it sort of hyper emphasized the wickedness of the flesh, mm -hmm. which of course, I, when the Bible uses flesh, it's not often thinking about desire, but in those communities, there was a complete collapse between flesh and desire, flesh and body. And so mm -hmm. I think there was real paranoia in those communities about sex, um, real paranoia about having sex before marriage. That was the big one that was spoken about. And I think homosexuality wasn't really even spoken about. It was sort of a vacuum of silence, sort of gilded by flames in the sense of like, you all knew that... <laughs> The homosexuals went to hell. You all knew, I mean, sort of the reading of Sodom and Gomorrah, which I think is a terrific misreading <laughs> of sort of mapping homosexuality onto the residents of those cities, you know, like everyone knew the gays went to hell, um, mm -hmm. but it wasn't ever really in the room. It wasn't often spoken about. Um, key exceptions. <laughs> I had a world history class my sophomore year of high school, and my teacher taught this in class, which was, he asked us, why did the Babylonian empire fall? Why did the Greek empire fall? Why did the Roman empire fall? We were sort of like, I don't know, like they ran out of water. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, he's like, what links all of these empires falling is they started to allow homosexuality. I have heard that before, yep. Used that as a sort of inroad into the American empire is going to fall if we are lax on this issue. 
And I probably wrote that down in my notes. You know? I actually know the church that I grew up in also very not often said, but every once in a while, somebody who does history most often will relate those things and, and the overlap and tie it that, yeah, same thing with the degradation of a, of a society until it got to the point that it allowed homosexuality. And that's when the empire fell and it, that's what they will trace every single one I have heard. Yeah. Uh, interesting that huh. that ended up in a whole nother community. I wonder yeah. That. Hmm. That's a, you know, what a shame that it's in another community. Right. It's like, it's true. <laughs> and, you know, what I think of that now is, you know, if I had been able to acknowledge my sexuality to myself at that point, I might have thought like, wow, we're powerful. <laughs> <laughs> we are but, destroying empires that wow. won wars, right? Like <laughs> Exactly. Um, but so there were like bleak, brief flares where it was spoken about. And if it was spoken about, it was just made very clear that it was sort of the, the most despicable thing that one could be or do the thing sort of worthy of the most climactic punishment, um, full of drama, which I do think is very gay, (laughs) but, um, so that there was certainly a hard line there. And I, I think sort of on the other end, the expectation was marriage was between a man and a woman. You would wait to have sex or even masturbate until you were married. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of a step beyond that, it was even dangerous to touch at all, to, to touch someone of the other sex. And sort of an anecdote that illustrates that is we had chapel every week and in middle school I remember this pastor came into our cafeteria and gave a sermon on Song of Solomon which you'd think like how are you going to turn Song of Solomon which is very steamy sexy poetry into (laughs) an oppressive theology and he did it you know there's this line (laughs) In Song of Solomon, it's a refrain, which is like, sons of Jerusalem, don't unleash desire before it is ready. It will become like a a rushing river and sweep you away. Mm -hmm. And so he sort of based his whole talk on that verse. And I remember this illustration where, I mean, terribly, terribly misogynistic. Um, I think it was a very hard community to be a closeted gay man in, but mm-hmm. I think it was an extremely difficult community to be in if you were a straight woman or certainly a closeted woman. But the image he gave was young women, imagine yourself as a water balloon full of water. And young man, every time you hold a girl's hand and take it away, it's like a needle jabbing into that balloon. Every time you hug and pull away a needle, every time you were kiss a bigger needle pulling away. And young ladies, by the time you get to marriage, you're not gonna have any water left. You're just gonna be a scrap of rubber. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, funny, yeah. not funny, but yes. Not funny, but it is wow. funny where it's like, oh wow. wow. How, and like, I remember specifically leaving that chapel, it caused a ton of buzz, you know, because middle school, I'm sure everything was about flirtation. Everything (laughs) was about sort of, I like you, you like me. And I sort of remember like 
leaving that chapel, like looking at my hands and like, are they needles? Like what? (laughs) So I think for me specifically, how those sort of theologies institute or substantiated themselves in like my life was a deep, profound fear of my body, a deep, profound fear of my desire or arousal and a deep, profound fear of touch touching Mm -hmm. others and also being touched. And I think something that sort of added to that was my, my family wasn't very physically affectionate at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think my mom is just also someone who's been in this sort of church community all her life. And I think has sort of inculcated a very complicated relationship to touch. And my dad maybe was a little bit more physically affectionate than my mom, but was also very angry most of the time. And so he sort of stayed away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think those were sort of the main theologies, but I think sort of the result of the theology was for me to completely distrust my flesh, Mm -hmm. to completely distrust my body, especially when puberty hit and I started to (laughs) hum with arousal for the wrong people. That's how your brain thought about it, right? Like it's just the wrong thing. Absolutely. What was that moment like for you when you started to recognize the feelings that you had and how they were sort of um, in conflict with pretty much everything it seems you had been taught and exposed to up to that point? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a great question. And when I think back on that, it's it's sort of a complicated answer for me, um, but there's a few moments that stand out particularly. I think, you know, I, <laughs> I remember in the third grade, I had a friend who every Wednesday I would go over to his house and we'd swim, we'd do all sorts of things. And as a third grader, you know, like I was sort of commanding this friend to pin me down and, you know, I had no idea what sex was, especially what kink was, (laughs) (laughs) but there was something innate in that structure that was really sort of thrilling for me, but it also, you know, it felt thrilling in sort of a dangerous way and sort of a, I don't know, like a, yeah, I, I don't know. So I think like, there was certainly attraction to other boys very early for me, mm-hmm. but was I perceiving what was happening there on a conscious level? No. On a subconscious level, I think I was just because that was sort of the year where I, I suffered sort of a year of extreme insomnia and mm-hmm. um, sort of having panic attacks every night where just not being able to stay in my bed and in the room. Um So, you know, they could be just aligned randomly, but I I kind of don't think they were. Um, Fast forward a few years, and I think where it sort of all began was I, it's so ironic (laughs) how this happened, but I was in the seventh grade. My seventh grade teacher had these like magazines that were Christian, like evangelical magazines. I can't remember, Brio was the name of one. Can't remember the name of the other one. But like we had finished a project and I was reading through one 
And for some reason, there was an article about erections. And I had never heard the word erection before. And I was obviously, I was a good reader. And so I was like, <laughs> this is very compelling to me. It was something to the effect of like, boys going through puberty, get erections for everything. Like, don't be worried if you get an erection, if you see like another boy, like it doesn't mean anything. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So that, sort of an interesting discourse there, which will come back. <laughs> um, but I went home and I knew I was sort of doing something wrong, I thought, because I'm like, I knew it had something to do with the penis. But I was like, I don't know what an erection is. So I um, <laughs> looked up on Wikipedia erection and <laughs> it brought up what an erection was. And there was sort of like an anatomical textbook picture of a penis. I remember seeing that and feeling so profoundly guilty, clicking out, but also getting an erection. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knew what an erection was then. But that sort of event sort of sparked something in me. We had a family computer, you know, like we weren't really allowed to Google search on our own, but there was a series of nights in sort of the late, and it was around Easter time because um, I just remember that where I would sneak out at night and I would look things up on the computer. Um, it started very innocent um, it started with, I knew what I was doing was bad. Right. And I don't think I would have, I didn't even articulate to myself that what I was doing was gay. Um, but what the first, I remember this so radiantly clearly, the first thing I looked up on Google was obviously I didn't want to get caught, but I was sort of, okay, if I do get caught, I need to cover my bases. <laughs> and so I looked up dicks. Cause I'm like Dick's sporting goods. Like that's <laughs> like, I can, I can smooth that one over. I can. <laughs> Absolutely. So I looked up Dick's balls because I was, <laughs> there's basketballs and things at Dick's sporting goods. <laughs> I looked up sacks cause I'm like sacks that the balls go in. And so I, I Google searched that there were like pretty extreme safety filters on my computer. So I couldn't like, access porn I didn't even mm -hmm. know what it was really um was that insulated but what came up I remember this was this sort of grainy shot of like a hairy penis <laughs> and I was so <laughs> this is so embarrassing I can't believe I'm saying <laughs> it's a good story I was so titillated by it that I took that image and I made it the background screensaver of the computer just to like see it bigger, oh. but I didn't know what would happen. It wasn't big enough. So it like tessellated 500 times. Oh, right. They used to do that. Yeah. It would give you like a, a million little hairy penises. So there were just like 500 <laughs> dick on the screen and <laughs> panicking. I'm like, what if someone comes in and I change the screensaver to spot the dragon? <laughs> So that was sort of the first night. And over a series of nights, I got bolder and bolder and started, you know, I started there. And by maybe night three, I was looking up like gay sex. So, so <laughs> no cover up there. That was <laughs> nope. And I I knew 
I knew enough about gayness to know that that was gonna sort of lead me to what I was looking for. Again, because of the safety filters, I didn't really see things. I also just looked up weird things like naked roller skating. I remember looking up. <laughs> I, you know, seventh grade, weird, weird people. But so I did that for four nights. And I think an ironic part of this was it was during Easter. And I remember my church put on this thing called the Resurrection Celebration. And it met in Tucson's biggest sort of arena. It usually attracted 10 to 15,000 people because they, they brought in like contemporary Christian music artists. They had a guest speaker. His name was Joel C. Rosenberg. He was famous for having prophesied 9-11 before it happened. And he was one of those who was very much obsessed with apocalypse, very much obsessed with reading contemporary Middle Eastern politics and mapping it onto Revelation. Mm. <laughs> So very reputable source, but I remember him. I was sitting in church planning what I was going to Google search later that night. And I remember him saying, he's like, I mean, come on. It's not like you're just out there sitting in that chair, planning your next sins. And I remember, like, mm, well, actually <laughs> stricken. I was like, Oh my God, like, but I did it anyway. I still that night, I was like, I don't care if God is talking to me right now. I have to look up dicks, balls, and sacks. <laughs> and so the sort of end of this story is I did not know that search history was a thing. I did not oh, know no. that computers yeah. of searches. And so I can't remember exactly what my mom Ooh. found, but she typed something into the Google search bar and it popped up past searches. She typed <laughs> dicks, dicks, balls. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, you know. Um, and so she yells, boys, get in here. And we all get in there. And she's like, I found this on the computer. And whatever it was, it was, it was gay. You know, like it was, it was some picture of a naked man or a penis. And my mom asked like, did you do this? And I lied. I have always had a very strong guilt conscious. So I sort of writhed in guilt for three hours. And then I told her, I'm like, mom, I looked it up. And she sort of nodded and she was like, you have to tell your dad. Um, and so I waited until my dad got home and had to tell him not only that I had looked up some dirty pictures, but that they were pictures of men and very hard sort of traumatizing thing to have to tell my dad, who is a very sort of like typical sports obsessed, machismo, straight, aggressively straight sort of father and you know, he sort of put his hands on my shoulders and was like, Josh, like being gay is a choice. He, you know, like when I was a kid, like I saw the dog humping the cat and I got a boner, you know, like everything gives a kid an erection. Like it doesn't mean anything you can choose against it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I clung to that. Um, I, <laughs> the next night I went out again and I learned how to delete search history and I <laughs> yes. else because that was not the most incriminating thing that could have been found. <laughs> and I made an oath with God on that day where I said, God, 
I am never going to do anything ever again. That'll make me feel guilty. Um, horrible, horrible oath to make with God. Um, an oath that is going to destroy a life with anxiety. And so I think that was sort of in that moment, even though I was looking up things like gay sex, because of the sort of reinforced rhetoric of my dad's, which was it's a choice. Mm -hmm. I just sort of believed like, okay, I can choose against it, you know? And over the course of high school, I didn't look at pornography. Um, I didn't masturbate until I was 19 years old, which is years, <laughs> years during, uh, during puberty, during puberty, you know, I was wildly repressed terrified of my body, terrified of what it would do. And so I think sort of the shape of my high school, especially was I was well-liked. I was popular. Um, I, I was also sort of known as the paragon of righteousness, you know, like mm -hmm. I wasn't distracted by girls, like a lot of the other guys in my class, which I was able to say, yes, it's just because I'm righteous. <laughs> Whereas at the same time, I was like sneaking into the locker room for no reason to like make <laughs> someone in the sh shower. <laughs> um, but I, I somehow did rhetorical gymnastics with myself where even though my life was built around the goal of not being perceived as gay and what that looked like was I decided not to play football because I knew the football players showered naked after practice and I would be given away. <laughs> and so I ran cross country, which I thought would be better, but everyone was running in very short shorts without their shirts. And so it wasn't, <laughs> um, but things were more hidden. We didn't take showers. Um, I, you know, I was mostly friends with the girls in my class, but I would never sit at a, a lunch table with all women because there was just that shape for me read as gay. I did a commercial on the radio for my school once my senior year, and I'd never heard my voice recorded before. And when that commercial aired and played back to myself, I was mortified because mm -hmm. I was like, I sound so gay. I sound so gay and everyone has to know. Um, and so I was obsessed with not being perceived as gay. And yet I didn't think I was gay. <laughs> I, I had, you know, I, I didn't have girlfriends. My parents didn't allow us to date. Um, but I had like girls I liked all through high school. Um, but so internally, that was sort of the relationship was I knew I was, but I was sort of clinging to the false truth of it can be chosen or not. And I was just really actively choosing against it even though there were lapses there were times where I would steal into the locker room you know like there were dreams I would have you can control the pornography you watch but you can't control what you dream about mm -hmm. um and so it's just very very conflicted hyper anxious guilty to the degree that it made my life really miserable I was yeah. terrifically unhappy in high school and nobody knew Nobody besides my closest friend, Sarah, who suggested I see a counselor after I would sort of spiral with her, but it was the sort of community where it was like counseling was seen as sinful. Counseling was seen as it was a failure of your, the strength of your relationship with Christ. And so 
I think what I did was I used that sort of Christian righteousness that really is, it was a game for me. I knew how to look righteous in the eyes of everyone else. I knew how to play that persona really accurately. Um, and I did that to hide, um, to even to hide from myself 